1: What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half fast History. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about the Carthaginian General Hannibal Barker. Now, no doubt you've heard of this uh, incredible bloke and his incredible mission to cross the Alps in, uh, in 218 BCE during the Second Punic War. Uh, suggested to me by uh, as a topic by alert listener Derek Carlson. Good on you, Derek, old mate there. But um, after doing a fair bit of reading about Hannibal, I decided to sort of expand things beyond uh, just the crossing of the Alps. Very interesting to do more research about what the deal was with the whole situation, not just with crossing the Alps, but, but, but with Hannibal more generally. So uh, what we're going to do is, this is going to be two-parter, we're going to have a chat about the crossing of the Alps and, and the beginning of the Second Punic War uh, in this episode. Next week we'll come back, of course, for the follow-up, what actually happened after the Alps and, and, and the conclusion of the Second Punic War and, and uh, his life after that. Because uh, there's a lot going on with Hannibal. In in military circles, he's, uh, you know, uh, this legendary figure. He's up there with Alexander the Great, Napoleon, all the other people like that. And once you start to see what this bloke got up to, uh, you really start to understand why. So, you anyway, know, as I say, today we're talking about the this bloke traipsing across, across the Alps with tens of thousands of soldiers and, of course, most famously with 37 or 38 elephants as well. And next week we'll have a chat about what happened after we arrived, including uh, including the enormously famous famous Battle of Cannae, which is uh, still referred to and learned from by uh, the best military minds today. So very, very important there. Anyway, let's get stuck into the story because, uh, you know, it's a, it's a bloody good one. Uh, it's also a bloody long one. So, as I say, let's let's get stuck in. So we're going to back a fair way here, back to 240. 41 BCE, which is when the first Punic War ended. Now, Punic is just an adjective that basically means Carthaginian, and so the Punic Wars refer to wars that were fought between Rome and Carthage. So Punic, Carthaginian basically means the same thing. So Carthage, if you don't already know, was an empire that occupied the Mediterranean coast of Northern Africa, and as we'll discover, parts of Iberia or modern-day Spain uh, as well. So, back in 241, however, uh, BCE, all all the dates throughout this entire thing are going to be BCE before uh, before the Common Era, before zero, uh, so... You know, keep that in mind. Anyway, the Carthaginians, the Romans, uh, they've been fighting this war, which saw the Carthaginians lose. The First Punic War uh, saw them lose basically all the territory they had in Sicily, as well as in Corsica and Sardinia. So when Sa- when Carthage uh, surrendered to Rome, they're forced to hand over not only all this land, but also big stacks of cash. And as you can imagine, the Carthi- Carthaginians, they're not too happy about this. Having lost the First Punic War, you know, not a very good position for them to be in. They're so unhappy about it, in fact, that they go off in search of new conquers, uh, new areas to conquer uh, so they you know, can try to refill their pockets and try to recover after this loss to the Romans. Now, at this stage, Carthage is, sort of without going too deep on the whole thing, it's governed by two competing parties. There's the War Party and the Peace Party. Now, a bloke named Hamilcar Barker, who was a big cheese in the War Party and had been a general in the First Punic War, he absolutely bloody hated the Romans. He hated the Romans, I'll tell you that much, but he sets his sights on the south coast of Iberia, again, modern-day Spain. And so in 238, he sets off to uh, to go and conquer it in, in the name of Carthage, uh, three years after the First Punic War was finished up. Now, remember, of course, with uh, because we're talking in BCE dates, uh, we're counting backwards in years. So 238 BCE is actually after 241 BCE, not, not before it. it actually, they go in reverse. So it must have been very confusing for people making calendars back then, what, you know what they were thinking when it was going to reach zero. But in any case... <laughs> um hamilcar he conquers the pants off various tribes and natives in iberia well and truly cementing the carthaginian empire's dominance in this region Uh, very very good for carthage for two reasons firstly fills their pockets as which is exactly what they want to do with riches brilliant you know they're fantastic sending all this wealth back home to carthage Um, but the second reason is it gives them a much greater influence in the mediterranean and gives them another base of operations for fighting against the romans now Carthage was based sort of in, loosely in modern day Tunisia although its its territory expanded out you know quite a way beyond that so this is another base of operations for them uh, on the south coast of what is today Spain the Iberian peninsula as it you know as it's known so very very good position here for the for the Carthaginians after having gone and cracked some skulls uh, in Iberia Unfortunately, however, unfortunately for poor old Hamilcar, after eight years of conquering and fighting in Iberia, he actually drowns. He dies. He drowns uh, while he's fighting a battle against one of these Iberian tribes in 228. Now, his son-in-law, a bloke named Hasdrubal the Handsome, uh, takes over as the big knob of the Carthaginian effort in Iberia. Uh, but he has—I have to say—he he takes his foot off the conquering pedal to try his hand a bit of diplomacy here. We have got Hamilcar has been going around hammer and tongs, you know, as I say, feeding him the left and the right. But Hasdrubal he pulls back a little bit and he's going, "No, look, you know, I'm going to I'm going to try." I'm I'm going to try a different victory condition in Civ 6 here. I'm going to go for I'm going to go for the diplomatic victory. He's a bit of a he's a bit of a wheeler and a dealer. Uh, no surprise, considering he's known as the Handsome, and he does a good job of consolidating Carthaginian control relatively peacefully. But now there's one important colony, a Grecian colony on the uh, on the coast there that I want to talk about a little bit. It's holding out asterisk like against the Carthaginians. Uh, it's a place called Saguntum, uh, and it was a Roman protectorate, a Grecian colony uh, a colony sorry under Roman protection. Now remember them because it'll be important pretty soon. Remember this name, remember this little, this little colony there. Anyway, old mate uh, Hasdrubal the Handsome, he ends up getting assassinated in 221. He's apparently just too handsome for this world, and so he bites the dust. Now, who is there to take his place? Finally, at long last, it is the hero of our tale. It is Hannibal Barker himself, the the son of Hamilcar Barker. So we've got Hamilcar, and then his son-in-law Hasdrubal, and now Hannibal is large and in charge. So some quick stats on Hannibal. He was born in modern-day Tunisia, as I say, down there in Carthage, in uh, 247 BCE. His dad made him swear an oath that he would never be a friend to Rome before apparently taking him off to war with him when he was just nine years old. So this bloke, this little kid has been around. Now, he marries a bird named uh, Emilcare and uh, might or might not have had a son. We're not 100% sure about this. But as I say, large and in in charge in 221 in his late 20s. The first thing he does, he, uh, he goes to consolidate his military power in Iberia, quelling rebellions and gearing up to follow in his father's footsteps of conquest. He uh, attacked rebelling tribes as you know, ruthlessly as anything, putting them right out of the ground, uh, which caused a lot of other tribes to surrender to him out of fear. Uh, Hannibal then gave a bunch of the tributes that he'd received in fighting these tribes to the soldiers with whom he'd been campaigning, which made him very, very popular indeed with his troops. Now, Hannibal, we're going to talk about this throughout these episodes here. He was a pretty bloody good bloke. He's a very, you know, a very, very smart bloke, very, very clever. And obviously, a lot of the stuff that he did was based on, you know, the sort of the tactical advantage that he'd get for whether it was on the battlefield or socially with people or as a leader, politically, whatever else. But he was just genuinely, he genuinely said to be a pretty good bloke and so he's gone around given all of these soldiers his gold and silver that they've pillaged from these uh these tribes people that that they've conquered and as a result he's got these people really well and truly behind him at his back he's got some very very loyal soldiers already so he continues to conquer iberia capturing about two-thirds or three-quarters of modern spain with the exception of once again saguntum which still holds out against carthage he leaves saguntum alone for now he's got another plan on the boil here hannibal is is dead set on attacking Rome. He's inherited his dad's absolute red hot hatred of the Romans. He's going to live up to that oath that he made, and he is keen as all get out to start feeding them the left and the right as well. So he wants to get over to the Iberia, the, uh, the Italian peninsula, excuse me. He wants to get over to uh, to modern day Italy, to where Rome is based, and start to uh, to crack some scales there. So he starts to formulate a plan as to how he's going to do this, and he defies all expectations in preparing to inv- by what he's going to do is invade Rome. Via land, this this might not sound as crazy, you know, when, when you sort of say it like that. It doesn't sound that ridiculous, but just just have a think about it for a second. Imagine the Italian Peninsula. It's the big boot-shaped thing, and on, on the top of it, up the top, up the north end there, it's protected by the European Alps. The idea of marching an army, especially a big one, of marching an army through the mountains is ludicrous, especially when you just, you know, you'd go via the sea, you'd load everyone up into boats and you'd go and disembark on the coastline and then march from there. No, no, no. Hannibal reckons that a land invasion is the way to do it as the Romans are way too well prepared for, to to fend off a sea invasion. So he reckons he's going to take, he's going to catch them with their pants down and get over the Alps. This is this is a monstrous undertaking and, and, and people can't believe it when they hear what he's going to to get up to. But all the, all the same, Hannibal, he's... Starts making his preparations for this land invasion which begin by getting in touch with the Badan Gauls these are the people who live in the Po Valley just on the other side of the Alps right up in the north there near Turin right so right sort of top left the the northwest corner of Italy there just just below the Alps so, Hannibal's network of spies and emissaries, they, emissaries, they tell him that the Padan Gauls would welcome them down into the Alps with open, bloody arms. As they themselves, they've been subjugated by the Romans, they've been conquered, and they absolutely bloody hate them as well, as the Romans have been treating them like crap. And they're bloody sick of it. They're absolutely bloody sick of it, eh? So this is a big deal. This is a very big deal because it meant that when Hannibal descended from the Alps, he wouldn't be coming into hostile Roman-controlled territory while vulnerable. It means he'd be welcomed by people who were wanting to rebel against their, you know, Roman overlords, bloody perfect, mate, because otherwise he'd be at a huge strategic disadvantage, bringing presumably tired and fatigued and, and, and sick and maybe even injured people down off this uh, this mountain climb, right? He'd be coming down into an area that was going to welcome him rather than, you know, having to drive immediately for battle. So after consolidating his fighting force in Iberia and sorting stuff out for his arrival on the other side of the Alps, Hannibal now has a war to kick off. But there's a big problem, big problem in his way here. Carthage is still bound by the peace treaty from the First Punic War, and Hannibal breaking it would be a big diplomatic problem. You'd get you know, stuck in the bloody got penalties, mate. Absolute disaster here. Now, as Saguntum was a Roman protectorate, Hannibal figured out that if he could trick Saguntum into going to war with Carthage, that he'd then be able to fight them and the Romans without ever declaring war. He'd then be defending himself from Saguntum and by proxy by the Romans, so they'd be the one uh, breaking the peace treaty. So Hannibal starts provoking the Saguntines, trying to get them to fight. You know, trying to, uh, harassing them and, and, and sort of going out all these you know nasty things he's saying about and bullying them, diplomat, you know all these diplomatic blunders or whatever else, all designed to, to provoke this the, uh, the Saguntines. But they will. They just. They won't rise to the bait. They just won't rise to the bait here. And Hannibal, he goes well, after you, know, trying to 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 get these guys to fight. And he says, "Bugger this. Bugger this for a joke." And he besieges the city. But even now, Rome won't get involved, despite the Saguntines begging Rome for help. They don't do anything, they just sent a few envoys out there to try to sort it out. And these envoys are laughed out of town by Hannibal, who is deliberately very, very rude to them, extra rude, in fact, hoping that they'll go back to Rome and suggest that Rome go to war itself, thanks to this massive insult that these uh, these envo- envoys have you know, had to suffer. Unfortunately for Hannibal, doesn't work and Rome continues to just more or less ignore completely everything that's, that's happening over there in Iberia, more or less anything, everything that Hannibal does. So just think about that for a second, just think about this. You've got this empire that you've crushed in a previous war, starting to make a real comeback and not bothering to hide the fact that they want to go to war and you do next to nothing? Honestly, mate, I don't know what the Romans were thinking. I mean, obviously, we've got the benefit of hindsight. We know that Hannibal ended up being one of the greatest military commanders of all time. But at the time, I guess they were just working with the information they had. And I'll tell you what, they really stuffed that up. Anyway. Saguntum falls. After eight months of uh, of of siege there, uh, it finally falls, and this is excellent for Hannibal. Saguntum, very, very rich city indeed. Very, very rich city, and it gets plundered and looted like there's no tomorrow by Hannibal and his troops. Now, I've already talked about the way that Hannibal liked to divvy up the spoils of war here, and again, he uses this cash very, very cleverly indeed. Firstly, he pays all of his mercenaries, which is generally a good idea on both a you know sort of being a decent, be, de, being a decent businessman being a decent bloke sort of level and also a you know not getting your throat cut as you sleep kind of level because mercenaries obviously they got to get paid secondly he fills his war chest full of riches so as to fund the long and difficult journey uh, you know all the way to and then across the alps thirdly he makes it rain on his soldiers. They are loving life after getting these bloody huge big bonuses once again from this general that they already love. But finally, and, and probably the most cleverly here, right, the rest of the cash, including all of the money that he made from, from capturing everyone in, in Saguntum and selling them as slaves, all of this, all this money here, right, it gets sent back to Carthage, where it is distributed amongst the common people there. It's distributed amongst the entire city. It's given out to people like this. And as you might expect, people bloody love this. At the moment, the Peace Party are doing everything they can to stop the war, but Hannibal sending home squillions and squillions of bucks like this turns public opinion very, very much in his favour. If you haven't already figured this out, Hannibal is a really, really smart bloke. So he is off to the races. He's got public opinion behind him. He's got this momentum after having taken Saguntum, and he's ready to start to, uh, to Roll down on the Romans. Anyway, he has, he's got a winter ahead of him, however, so he has to chill out during the winter after the siege. He sends his troops off for, for a bit of R&R. Now, interestingly, what he does is he sends all of his Iberian troops to Africa while keeping all of his African troops in Iberia so as to minimise the amount of desertions people going, oh, bugger this, I'll just go home and stay there, whatever else like that. So he he, he tries to keep the army as, as uh, you know as as high in numbers as possible. In any case, once winter ends, he musters his armies once again, and he sets off leaving his brother, who is confusingly also named Hasdrubal, like Hasdrubal. Hasrabal the handsome this guy I guess Hasrabal the the normal looking I assume um, in charge of Carthaginian Iberia based in of course the city of New Carthage which actually still still there today Cartagena in Spain is is sort of what what New Carthage ended up becoming anyway Hannibal, he takes with him 90,000 infantry, 12,000 cavalry, and of course, just under 40 elephants. So, this is a huge, huge army. But let's pause here for just a a tick to talk about war elephants, because very, very interesting animals they are. Very interesting indeed. Absolutely fascinating to learn about what these animals were used for back in the day. Obviously, war elephants are very popular in India, being used as early as the 6th century BCE, but probably even earlier than that. Uh, And they're used here and there in China as well, as early as around 500 BCE, and as, as late actually as the 10th century CE. So, that's, you know, Well, well after, you know, a millennia after what we're talking about here. And uh, old man Alexander the Great, uh, he saw Indians using elephants and thinks to themselves, well, Bloody good idea that you know he gets over over to India, sees these great big beasts. He goes, "I'll take some of them back with me," I reckon. And this helped to spread the military technology of war elements, uh, elephants further west, bring them over over from India, especially to you know to fight campaigns there. The first time they were ever used in Europe was in three eighteen BCE by one of Alexander's generals, Polyperchon, during the wars that follow Ale- Alexander's death, the uh, the wars of the. Diadochi, Diadochi, I've forgotten how to pronounce it. Di- the, the wars of all of Alexander's generals as they tried to figure out who was going to you know, look after his empire after he died. Anyway, um, but here we are, right? Now, 100 years later, in 218 BC, 100 years after they were first used by Polypercon, and uh, Hannibal has got either 37 or 38 of these elephants with him as he heads across the Alps, and they were very... Very powerful things to have on your side when fighting back then, obviously. Uh, and the Carthaginians, they would put them to good use in in, in the battles that they fought. Generally, they were used as, as the heaviest of heavy cavalry. They were whacked right in the center, of a big line of troops before heart charging head first at the enemy. Now, traditional anti-cavalry stuff like spikes and spears and whatever else that didn't do much to stop a rampaging elephant. And so they were very, very effective indeed at breaking up otherwise organized cl- clusters of infantry. Not only this, they terrified horses. Horses just terrified of elephants who would usually panic and run away as soon as they saw them. But never mind terrifying horses. Imagine how it was for soldiers who had never seen an elephant before to have one running at you at 30 kilometers an hour, tusks swinging about, trampling everything in its path. You'd be absolutely crapping your dax, mate. It'd, it'd be like seeing a, a dragon or a a demon or something like that coming at you, some some beast, some mythical beast that you you know you've heard of but never seen in real life. All of a sudden, charging you, attacking you, whatever else like that, it'd be terrifying. Anyway, elephants were very very effective in many cases, but people could very quickly actually learned how to fight against them. Alexander the Great he organised his troops in looser formations where they could dodge charging elephants and then attack their legs and undersides with spears. Um, Roman infantry eventually learned to try to cut off their trunks, which would then immediately panic poor old elephant and, and, and cause them to flee. And uh, but probably probably the most famous way that people try to counter the use of war elephants was by using the war pig, uh, covering a pig in oil, setting it on fire and directing it towards uh, oncoming elephants. Now, apparently, I've never personally, I haven't tested this, but apparently elephants are terrified of pigs. And so they would turn and run when they heard these pigs squealing. And this was obviously a very effective way to counter the use of elephants, because uh, as soon as the elephants turn around, uh, turn around and ran, ran away. Obviously, you weren't getting attacked by an elephant anymore, but it also meant that your enemies would now be the ones having to deal with a terrified, rampaging, monstrous beast. So it's sort of, you know, it was, it, it, it did worked out very well in your in your case if you could get get an elephant to panic and turn around. Anyway.
0: you
1: point is war elephants are basically enormous big scary tanks back then and Hannibal hoped to put them to good use against the Romans on the other side of the Alps However, he's got to get there first. He's got to fight his way through more hostile Iberian tribes, not only the Alps but just to the Pyrenees, right? The border with modern-day France and it cost Hannibal a huge number of men. He hadn't conquered uh you know every inch of modern-day Spain. He hadn't got his way all the way up to the Pyrenees and he has to fight for a fair few months to get get his way to uh to this mountain range. Uh, by the time he's reached the Pyrenees and ready to cross them, he's only taking about 50,000 men and 9,000 cavalry with him. Now, I've talked about the numbers already a little bit, but I want to sort of quickly note that these are estimates, and even then they're not, there's not a lot of agreement amongst historians both now and also way back then as to how big these armies actually were. These numbers might be way off, but they're the closest thing we've got to a best guess, so we'll just stick with them here he's lost about 13,000 of them in battle and and the rest are actually staying behind as garrisons to hold all of these you know, all this recently captured territory between uh, where he'd left and, and and the pyrenees there in any case he crosses the pyrenees without too much of an issue which is a refreshing change for the Carthaginian army after all the fighting that to do the get there. And they cross the mountains, no worries, and they head on towards their next obstacle, crossing the Rhône. Now, these days, you might not think that crossing a river is much of, you know, it's not a very big deal. But back then, it was a massive logistical issue for, you know, for enormous big armies. So you think about it. Think about what's required for tens of thousands of people and 37 or 38 elephants to cross a river with no bridge, Yeah, not to mention armour and weapons and supplies and all the rest of it. It's, it's a huge undertaking. But no worries, our mate Hannibal, he's got a plan. Of course course he's got a plan. Luckily for him, all the inhabitants on the western bank of the Rhône, just like Hannibal himself, they bloody hate the Romans. This means that Hannibal gets a fair bit of help from them, which comes in very handy. They help him find and build boats over the course of two days uh, that that they're they're camped out there on the banks of the Rhône they're trying to get across. But on the eastern bank, things are a little bit different. The Romans have a lot more influence, and they stir up the tribes there to stand up and fight against Hannibal. Now, one Gallic tribe, I'm not sure if they were called the Volcae or the Cavares. I've seen both names. In any case, this Gallic tribe, they think, oh, this will be easy pickings here. They set up a camp on the east bank of the river, ready to cut down all the Carthaginians as they were getting off their boats, which, think about it, we hugely bottlenecked. They wouldn't be able to defend themselves. It's going to be a very easy, things like shooting fish in a barrel there for them to cut down the Carthaginians as they are bottlenecked trying to get over the river. Very, very good move from the local Gauls. Gauls give them this massive tactical advantage. They can just line up and slaughter the Carthaginians, chop them to pieces. Easy game. Hannibal doesn't seem to be too concerned about this for some reason he's he, not his troops don't either they're they're having a great time they're making huge amounts of mess and noise they put their boats together they're laughing whistling singing dancing a great time not, meanwhile these these you know this gallic tribe on the other side of the river going what the what the hell i mean we're going to absolutely butcher these bikes what are they thinking anyway after hanging around for a while they get everything ready and then hannibal's just kind of hanging around chilling out for a bit and then he orders everyone to start crossing and they're laughing and jeering at the gauls having a great big carry-on before they get on their boats and sail across the river and before long it's revealed why the Gauls, who again they're scratching there, they can't figure out what's going on. They're ready to attack. They've lined up and they're ready to just butcher these Carthaginians. They come off the boats. They are completely and utterly unprepared for a surprise attack from the rear. Hannibal the Brilliant bastard that he is. He has sent one of his lieutenants, a bloke named Hanno, with a contingent of troops upriver. They went off in the middle of the night so the Gauls wouldn't see them, and they snuck across the river on these crude rafts they'd built. They'd sort of lashed together logs, and, and they'd use them to get across uh, across the stream there. And they'd march down as quick as they could and given Hannibal a smoke signal to show they're ready for attack. Meanwhile, Hannibal's been making a huge big song and dance about you know making these boats, making sure the the, the Gauls are, are keeping their attention focused where, where he wants it, focused, so they're not going to notice this uh, this other contingent turning up. And as a result, Hannibal, he waits to see this smoke signal, hangs about until he sees it, sends all the troops over the river, and then Hannu and his contingent charge through the Gaulic camp. They set it on fire and descend upon the Gauls, who are trying to obviously defend the river, and it is an absolutely crushing defeat for the Gauls. They hardly put up a fight. They realise they're totally surrounded, and so they crap their decks, and they start to run. They're getting out of dodge as quick as they can. So after five days of careful planning and preparation, the whole thing is over. In a couple of minutes, Hannibal's Once again, got him through what otherwise would have been an impossibly difficult situation, getting tens of thousands of people across a river like that. Anyway, with the roan behind him, Hannibal's way to the Alps is nice and clear he just has to get there quick smart before winter comes because he knows that if he delays too long he'll be descending the Alps into a freshly raised Roman army so he charges on with his enormous you know, huge big contingent that he's got huge big enormous army and uh, with a few small adventures on the way he manages to arrive at the foothills of the mountain in modern day southeast France not too late in the autumn ready to get stuck in to these bloody Alps mate. Now, something that's quite interesting about Hannibal's crossing of the Alps, considering how famous it is, is that we actually don't know for sure the path that he took while crossing the mountains. Uh, Historians and geographers have attempted to figure out based on the information that we have, but it's still quite unclear. There are five different mountain passes that Hannibal could have used, all within spitting distance of of the modern-day border between France and Italy. Um, But the leading theory out of all of these five is that Hannibal used the Col de la Traversette, which is uh, southwest of modern-day Turin. This is uh, because of how it sort of matches up with uh, the ancient sources that we have the route that Hannibal took, as well as archaeological evidence that thousands of humans and animals had, had really sort of messed it up at one point thousands of years ago. And apparently, I was reading, they've even been able to detect bacteria and, and, and other stuff in the soil that would have been in the guts of the horses. So you can tell a lot of research has gone into answering this question. And, and, and our best guess at the moment is the Col de la although it could have been, you know, one of the other five. Anyway, in any case... Regardless of which route Hannibal took, he has a fair bit of difficulty actually following it. One of the first mountain passes he needs to get through is guarded by a tribe called the Allobroges, who have a fortification that is stopping people from getting through. Hannibal, he sends out spies to check out what's going on with the Allobroges, and they actually discover that the tribe leaves the fortification essentially undefended at night. Now, as a result, one night, old mate Hannibal, he has his armies light these great big campfires, as many as they could, in order to make the Allobroges think that he was settling down for a while and he wasn't going to attack, you know, keep him off their guard. Now, of course, you know that Hannibal is going to zag on him here. You know that he's not going to, you know, play by the rules, and he, he doesn't. He does exactly what you'd think he'd do. He creeps up there dead at night with all of his troops and captures the fortification, no worries at all. The problem now, problem now is he's got to march his entire company through this pass, this narrow pass here, and the baggage train is going to be very tricky to get through there safely as the path, it's narrow, it's treacherous, and there's a huge drop down on one side. So what he does is he hides his ranged soldiers his archers and his slingers up above the pass while he tries to get all of his baggage through so they've got a bit of range support because the Allobroges, they see that Hannibal's men uh, you know are at this moment of, of supposed weakness they've got all of these uh, these this, this undefended baggage train they think well bloody hell this is our moment to strike and so they attack uphill despite the terrain's advantage and they are promptly torn to pieces by the archers and the slingers Hannibal himself led the infantry who fought them off this was a hallmark of his, uh, his uh, sort of career as, as a general and as a soldier. He often had that, 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 that quality of leaders that is, is so rare and so positive, he would always take part himself in what he ordered other people. He was prepared to get his own hand, hands dirty. If he ordered someone else to do something, you know that he would do it himself as well. So he leads the, the infantry charge and almost all the Allobroges are killed. Heaps of them are actually falling off the side of the mountains to their deaths there. And easy game, another big V for here for old mate Hannibal, who once again has all the tricks to beat out his opponents. like he can see just a, a, couple, of, a couple of minutes into the future and figure out what his opponents are going to do and, and and sort of you know put the countermeasures that he needs in place of that. It's, it's, it's quite incredible. Still, even, even given this, it was rough stuff for his army there while they got through the pass. And so once they're all safely through in a, in, a, in a bit more of a defensible position, Hannibal lets them all rest for a bit and gives a bit of a rousing speech to get everyone back up and about, back on their feet. Come on, boys, we've got to get over these mountains. We're going to go and give hell to the Romans. As they continue, they run into another tribe, this time the tribe called the Centrones. Now, the Centrones are very, very keen indeed to show Hannibal that they're not going to fight, they're not going to go the way of the Allobroges, they're going to capitulate and help him out as he heads further up the mountains. Now, they do this, they bring him prezies, they bring him food, they even bring him hostages to assure him that they're not up to any funny business, they're going to play by the rules, they're going to do what he wants. Now, obviously, they don't do a very good job of convincing him here because Hannibal, I don't know, he contests their deception check with a very, very strong insight role. And, and as a result, he recognises that these centrones, they're going to play silly buggers. Of course, they're going to play silly buggers with him and he's not going to fall for it at all. So the centrones, they say, Hannibal, big fella, listen, do you blokes need to go through the mountains? Because we can take you. No worries at all. And Hannibal, he knows what's going on here, but he says, oh, fellas, absolutely. Sounds terrific. Thanks so much. Show us the way. We'll be right behind you. Cheers very much for that. So for two days, the centrones, they're helping Hannibal navigate through the mountains until they get to another small pass. Now, the centrones, they're there, they're all smiling and happy, waving the Carthaginians through. No worries, fellas, on, you go on, you go, we'll catch up after you. But you'll never, ever guess what happens. You'll never guess what happens. When about half the Carthaginians are through the pass, the centrones turn on them and attack. I know, what a twist. Unbelievable, right? What a twist. (laughs) Directed by M. Night Shyamalan, the attack of the centrones. Anyway. Their thinking was to cut the Carthaginian army in half and thereby weaken it. They prepared boulders to roll down the Carthaginians as well, and rocks that they could chuck at them. So when uh, you know when it's go time, they start letting all these boulders roll down. They, they're falling down all the people, all the poor Carthaginians stuck in the past there, and they're chucking rocks, having a great time. The Centrones, you know, they think they they think they they've got it in the bag here. The problem is, for the Centrones at least, is that Hannibal. He expected this. He expected chicanery from these uh, these bloody Centrones. And so he left a stack of his best troops in the rear guard. Once the Centrones run out of rocks to throw down, therefore, they're kind of stuck. They are stuck on the high ground of this mountain pass and they've got no way down. They're in this, uh, as I say, narrow sort of pass here. Hannibal and half of his army are out front and these elite hoplites out the back. And the rear guard, they just wait. They're just sitting there. They know not to attack the Centrones in the pass. They know they've got the higher ground. They're, they're, they're stuck there, but they're not going anywhere. They're not going to attack them. And so they just, have to, they just have to wait. And surely after after long enough, the centrones, they have to try to descend, have to try to escape, and they just get picked off. Easy easy as anything by the hoplites who are waiting there to pick them off there like that. And that is the end of the centrones. Unfortunately, they are defeated very convincingly, thanks again to Hannibal being a step ahead of everyone else. But I have to say, all these ordeals have really taken a toll on his troops. The worst thing for all these soldiers is just simply the climate. You know, they're having to Battle through the mountains and the hostile tribes and whatever else, but more than anything else, it's just—it's so bloody cold. It is—it's—it's it's now around October and it's getting very bloody chilly up there in the mountains. And remember, all of that—have a think about it very quickly where all of these troops are from. They're all they're all either Iberian or African. They've never experienced cold like this in their entire lives. They are hating it. They've never come, you know, never come close to having to deal with with, with temperatures like this. So morale is pretty low. They've been on the go for about 5 months without stopping. People are kind of sneakily deserting every day and a lot of the animals that they'd brought with them have died as well. Very very yeah, very rough stuff here. They're in they're in dire straits. So Hannibal after having dealt with the Santrons like this marched on a little bit further up the mountain. He realizes he needs to do something. He realizes he's got to get everyone together because it's time here for another rousing speech. Get them together. Get the boys. You know, gather gather the boys around because I'm gonna I'm gonna get a big speech into into them and, and and that'll fix things up. So he stands up and he says to everyone, "Look, doing a bloody great job. Great job. All that big fanny work. Just a little bit further now, we'll be able to get through these bloody mountains. I know it sucks, but look, look there. See, just down there." That, mate, that down there, that is Roman territory. That's bloody Roman territory, mate. We are nearly there. A few more days, and we'll be down with those um who are they again? I've actually forgotten their names. The people the people we went and organised stuff with, so they'd be waiting for us. Begins with a begins with a P. Who was it? Oh, Padan. The Pedan Gauls. That's it. That's it. Yeah, they'll be waiting for us, fellas, and then we can go and crack some Roman skulls. What do you reckon? big cheers everywhere. Hannibal, bloody legend. Get around him. What a bloke. Bloody love this Hannibal fella. Can't get enough of him. It is still debated as to whether he could actually see down to the Roman controlled Po Valley at this stage, but no worries. The speech did the trick and people are back on their feet. By the way, that is a direct transcript of his speech. Obviously so moving that they wrote it down verbatim and, and, and we've had it ever since. Anyway, he did point down the, to, the, to what was apparently the Po Valley and this did stir people up to get them, you know, get them back on their feet and ready to go down. Unfortunately, the trials and tribulations aren't over yet. Anyone who routinely climbs mountains will know that coming down off a mountain can be more of a pain in the ass than actually climbing one. It's cold and it's miserable and there's snow freezing them all half to death each night and the paths are steep and incredibly dangerous and more than a few people plunge to their deaths over the side of these mountain paths and and a stack of pack animals too. But the biggest disaster by far comes when they reach a part of the path that has been completely blocked by a landslide, completely blocked up it is. Hannibal, he's determined though, he's going to try to march the army around the blockage but... After searching and scouting and, and marching and looking, he cannot find a way for them to get through. He sets up camp, therefore, and uh, you know where the path is blocked, and, and he, has a, he has a quick think about how he's uh, how he's going to solve this problem now. According to the contemporary historian Livy, this is how he did it. He set huge, enormous, big fires around the base of all the rocks that were blocking the path, and and he started to heat them up real nice. They're chucking all this fuel on the fire. They're blowing on it, getting everything they can to try to get these flames as hot as possible. Then... He gathered together all of the vinegar or perhaps the wine. We're not 100% sure, but uh, he gathered together a big, big stack of liquid, probably either vinegar or wine, that his troops had. And in one big go, he got everyone to chuck it on these hot rocks just like that in one go. Now, this liquid, of course, it's freezing cold and as the rocks were red hot, it made them crack and fall to bits. This is a mining technique that's called fire setting, and it was actually a very, very common way for people to sort of break up big rocks right up to the Middle Ages. So anyway, after blasting these big rocks apart, he forces everyone to move out quickly, clear them out of the way, and re- then reorganize his entire uh, entire army here to have the cavalry right at the front, so that they could rush down the rest of the mountain and feed the starving animals by having them graze on the fields below. The rest of the troops followed, and so, finally, at long last, after 15 days of these harrowing alpine conditions and challenges with the terrain and the locals and the rock falls and whatever else, Hannibal and his troops finally arrived on the Italian peninsula and they cannot believe their luck. They're so relieved to be back on, you know, out of these mountains, back a bit of a rest in front of them like that and their the spirits are very, very high once they're off the mountain. There's no huge consensus as to how many of the troops actually made it. Contemporary sources, wildly inconsistent. The number put anywhere between 20,000 and 100,000 troops remaining. So very difficult to tell exactly how many people made it across. But that's not the important thing. The important thing is that Hannibal... Has defied all traditional thought and expectation. He had gone against what everyone thought was possible. He'd successfully orchestrated a land-based invasion of the Italian Peninsula by marching tens of thousands of troops across a bloody mountain range. Now, this might sound not—you know—this might not sound like much. Again, might not sound like much. But, but to give an, to an example that I know that many of my listeners would be able to relate to, if you've ever played Civ there's a very good reason that mountain tiles are impassable. An operation like this was completely and utterly unthinkable. It's like saying Hannibal planned to swim from Iberia to Rome or to dig a tunnel under the Mediterranean. It was a truly astronomical achievement. It changed course of history and it more or less turned the Roman Republic on its head as they scrambled to respond to this completely unexpected development. But that, unfortunately is a story for another week. Join me next week as we have a chat about what happened after Hannibal descended from the Alps, the legendary Battle of Cannae in 1216 BCE and Hannibal's eventual return to Carthage. I cannot wait to get into it. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Hannibal Barker and his crossing of the Alps. And as I say, next week we'll get stuck into what happened once he finally got down the other side of the mountains and his adventures there, including, of course, the famous Battle of Cannae, which uh, you may have heard of before. Very, very famous battle indeed. Still looked on today by military uh, military tacticians and military academies and whatever else as an example of, uh, of one of the most stunning victories uh, in history. Spoiler alert there. So please do join us next week for more uh, more of the story of Hannibal Barker. Anyway, until then. Uh, if you want to get in touch with the show, halfasthistory.net. There's a contact form there. Still sending out stickers. They're on their way to many listeners right now as we speak. So thanks so much for all the messages and uh, and requests I'm getting from people. And uh, if you wouldn't mind doing me a bit of a favor, please just tell your friends about the show. Tell, tell your friends about half History. It's been really, uh, really flattering to see how many people are picking up and listening to the uh, listening to the podcast. And uh, I'd really like to get the momentum going. So if you wouldn't mind you know, sharing with your friends how this mediocre podcast is available for for download across your favorite podcast medium, Expect, expect Except Spotify, still can't figure out how to get it on Spotify. Uh, please do. I'd really appreciate it. Anyway, that's that for this week. As usual, leaving you with a question posed on uh, Reddit here. We've been chatting about the uh, the Barker family, been talking about, obviously, the legendary Hannibal Barker, his father, Hamilcar Barker. And uh, in that vein, Reddit historian some would like to know, did the descendants of Hamilcar Barker still receive residuals from his greatest invention, the Barker lounger?